This version of the Room Now podcast is dedicated to highlights from ULAR 2022. Herein, you will hear reports and perspectives from the Room Now faculty and key opinion leaders in rheumatology. Enjoy. Hi, I'm David Liu for Room Now uh, from Copenhagen, obviously from my Copenhagen apartment, not the center, because I've been kicked out of there, and because ULAR 2022 has ended, and there's been a lot of talk about ULAR 2023 in Milan. So what were the highlights for me on the last day? Well, we'll go through a few more of those in a moment, but I wanted to talk a little bit about one session this morning, which had a number of big hitters in it, uh, Ron uh, von Vollenhoven, uh, Philip van der Bosch, as well as Robert Landaway uh, this morning, talking about whether essentially we can achieve, well, we talk about drug-free remission, early drug-free remission, but essentially we're trying to get rid of rheumatoid arthritis, whether we can try and make some sort of intervention that can prevent rheumatoid arthritis ever happening or to try and interrupt that process. Now, so I'd recommend going to listen to that session. It's entertaining, all three speakers there, going through RA, spondyloarthritis, peripheral spondyloarthritis, um, really kind of dragging it out. But I think there are a few nice bits of data that have come about at this meeting that really play into this idea that, you know, we still haven't got, we haven't got our head around the kind of oncology idea of maybe this in, more intensive induction at the beginning to try and prevent, try and bend that immunological course for the future. Uh, that's something they do in oncology all the time. That's something we do in other rheumatic diseases where we have an induction phase and then a maintenance phase. But that's not necessarily something that we do in rheumatoid arthritis. Maybe it's a legacy um, of what we um, have done um, in the past when we were, would, it's a slow step up pyramid type approach and that we were more conservative, maybe because the data as it stands hasn't always supported it when we tried different therapies two abstracts. The first one was actually from the first day, this um, abstract uh, um, OP0531, uh, first day, second day, second day. Um, and it was actually um, the uh, ARIA data that we saw uh, at ACR, but with a little bit more detail that was alluded to there. ARIA was a six-month uh, study where they gave six months of abatacept in clinically suspect arthralgias. So patients, in this case, who were ACPA positive, rather MRI findings and had um, arthralgias, uh, but no synovitis and gave them six months of abatacept and then left them for 12 months and then saw what happened. And we saw the six month data um, at, uh, at, at ACR, which there was a nice big gap there of 30%. Uh, if I remember, I think it was 92% of patients on abatacept didn't proceed to rheumatoid arthritis versus 60, to inflammatory arthritis versus 65% um, in the placebo group. And that you might say, well, David, that's just treating early, early rheumatoid arthritis. You gave them six months of abatacept and a whole lot of them didn't develop RA. What's the big deal? Well, what they did was after that 12 months of not giving any therapy at all, and then what happened? Now, it was alluded to at ACR that they'd analysed the data a few days beforehand and that it looked like there was a benefit. And certainly that's what we actually saw um, this time around. So actually, this time we saw the 18-month data, which um, showed 65% um, of patients on the, in, in, who had had a Batacept previously uh, didn't get inflammatory arthritis versus, I think it was 37% um, in the uh, placebo group. Now, the gaps will narrow at different points, 
I think there's a lot to wash out there. And still then I think we've got to try and figure out who, how we pick the winners. There was a bit of talk about um, uh, whole genome sequencing um, and uh, earlier in the meeting from work from Karolinska. And I think we've still got a long way to go to figure that out. But I did want to mention that I think even then, Batacept expensive. We've got to try and figure out how to best use it. Methotrexate, less expensive. Can we do other things with it? Well, uh, so actually at the beginning of the conference, OP0070 was data um, from the Dutch looking at a similar type of population but with ongoing methotrexate treatment. In other words, is it worthwhile actually treating those patients who, um, who have those clinically suspect arthralgias? Now, it delayed the progression to, to, to full-blown rheumatoid arthritis. You know, that doesn't necessarily surprise. But what was interesting really was that there was improvements in function, improvements in presenteeism. Now, the paradigm has always been that we don't treat unless there's synovitis there. But maybe we can start to think about what early, early, very early rheumatoid arthritis looks like. Do we need synovitis to be able to give methotrexate? I ran a survey on Twitter, but about 180 respondents, and I think it was 72% were happy with, in the case that which we presented was uh, they, they gave methotrexate, a whole lot of others gave um, other therapies and only 3% didn't treat at all. So I think that maybe that's something we're already doing anyway, even if we're afraid to say it out loud. So for all the, the coverage from the meeting, and we've got a lot of coverage on the room now, head on down to the website, check us out on Twitter. Hello, this is Jonathan Kay reporting virtually from Massachusetts on day two of EULAR 2022, which is being held in Copenhagen. This meeting has been very successful with over 9,000 participants in attendance. At the abstract session this morning on clinical aspects and comorbidities of rheumatoid arthritis, there were several interesting presentations about a variety of topics. Over the past several years, there's been great interest in interstitial lung disease as one of the most frequent extra-articular manifestations of rheumatoid arthritis that significantly increases the risk of mortality. In abstract OP0132, Jose Andres Romani Vora of the Hospital Universario La Fe in Valencia, Spain, presented data about the prevalence of rheumatoid arthritis-associated interstitial lung disease in Spain. He and his colleagues used natural language processing to analyze unstructured clinical data obtained from over 2 million medical records at six public hospitals in four different communities in Spain. They found the prevalence of rheumatoid arthritis to be 0.5%, which is comparable to that in two previous studies conducted in Spain. However, since data were obtained only from public hospitals, this could represent an underestimate of the prevalence of rheumatoid arthritis. Among over 11,000 patients with rheumatoid arthritis, they found the prevalence of interstitial lung disease to be 8.6%, with two-thirds of patients being female, a mean age of 67 years, and two-thirds of patients reporting cigarette smoking. In contrast, the prevalence of cigarette smoking among rheumatoid arthritis patients without interstitial lung disease was 54%, which is consistent with the causative association between cigarette smoking and rheumatoid arthritis. This prevalence of interstitial lung disease is higher than that of 1.7% and 3.7% in two earlier studies in which medical records were reviewed manually. When comparing the prevalence of comorbidities among rheumatoid arthritis patients with and without interstitial lung disease, this group found the prevalence of infections, malignancies, and kidney and heart failure to be higher among rheumatoid arthritis patients with interstitial lung disease. This study took advantage of natural language processing to screen medical records from a very large number of patients to identify the prevalence of interstitial lung disease in rheumatoid arthritis. 
However, since chest radiographs were not performed in all patients, this study relied upon the clinical diagnosis of interstitial lung disease. Although the use of natural language processing might have been more sensitive to detect cases of interstitial lung disease, this higher prevalence of interstitial lung disease might also be due to greater awareness of this comorbidity of rheumatoid arthritis in recent years. It will be interesting to see this study replicated in other geographic locations with different patient populations. With publication of the oral surveillance study earlier this year in the New England Journal of Medicine, there has been great interest in the risk of malignancy and of major cardiovascular events among patients with rheumatoid arthritis who are treated with targeted synthetic or biologic DMARDs. In that study, incidence rates for major adverse cardiovascular events and malignancies were each higher for rheumatoid arthritis patients who are older than 50 years treated with tofacitinib than for those treated with TNF inhibitors. In abstract OP0135, Yvette Meissner presented real-world observational data from the German Rabbit Registry regarding the risk of cardiovascular events in patients with rheumatoid arthritis treated with JAK inhibitors. They followed patients who initiated treatment in 2017 or later with JAK inhibitors, TNF inhibitors, or conventional synthetic DMARDs. They identified a subgroup of these patients who were 50 years or older with at least one cardiovascular risk factor to correspond to those enrolled in the oral surveillance study. They found comparable incidence rates of major adverse cardiovascular events in patients receiving JAK inhibitors or those receiving TNF inhibitors. The incidence rate of major adverse cardiovascular events in the rabbit registry was lower than that reported for tofacitinib in both the oral surveillance trial and the STAR-RA study, which looked at patients in a Medicare claims database in the United States. The authors concluded that there is no evidence of an increased relative risk of major adverse cardiovascular events with JAK inhibitors compared to TNF inhibitors when used in daily clinical care. In abstract OP0138, Juan Molina Colada of the Hospital General Universitario Gregorio Marañón in Madrid presented data from the Spanish Biobasador registry regarding the risk of cancer after biologic and targeted synthetic DMARDs in 352 patients with rheumatic diseases and a history of prior malignancy. They found the rate of incident cancer per thousand patient years to be 38.3 for patients treated with TNF inhibitors and 21.8 for those treated with JAK inhibitors. The risk of incident cancer in patients with rheumatic diseases and a prior malignancy did not differ regardless of the type of biologic or targeted synthetic DMARD to which they were exposed. The investigators could not differentiate between new cancers and recurrent cancers. These results suggest that the incidence of recurrent malignancies is not higher in rheumatoid arthritis patients treated in daily clinical care with JAK inhibitors compared to those treated with TNF inhibitors, but these data need to be confirmed in other registries. I've mentioned three abstracts which report the prevalence of interstitial lung disease, cardiovascular events, and recurrent malignancies in patients with rheumatoid arthritis using various methodologies. However, there have been many other interesting abstracts which I do not have time to discuss in this video. For more information about these and other presentations at ULAR 2022, go to roomnow.com. I'm Jonathan Kay. I'll see you tomorrow. Hello everyone, I'm uh, Richard Conway reporting from ULAR 2022 for Room Now. The conference is in Copenhagen and uh, I'm reporting uh, virtually, uh, so I'm in Dublin, Ireland um, at the moment. I'm here to talk to you about an oral presentation by Pedersen et al. This was OP0067. This was presented in the plenary abstract, abstract session um, on Wednesday at the conference. The title of this that was that there was a more than six-fold increased mortality risk in patients with incident 
or A, and depression in a large cohort with 10-year follow-up. And so the background to this, we, we know that depression, very common problem anyway, um, but increased among our rheumatoid arthritis patients. And what the authors here did, they utilized the Dane Bio um, registry, very well uh, characterized uh, rheumatoid arthritis registry in Denmark. Um, and they got people who didn't have rheumatoid arthritis or depression um, at baseline. And they define that as not having had in the three years prior to the incident date, a prescription filled for methotrexate or an antidepressant. So perhaps not perfect um, in saying that they didn't have rheumatoid or depression, um, but a relatively good uh, uh, correlate, um, I think. And then they looked at patients who developed incident rheumatoid arthritis and who filled for the first time following the rheumatoid arthritis diagnosis, a script for antidepressants. And they cross-linked that with deaths from the Danish civil registration uh, system uh, for deaths. Overall, they included over 11,000 rheumatoid arthritis patients with 57,000 person years uh, follow-up. 10% of these patients uh, developed uh, depression or filled antidepressant prescriptions over the course of the study. As the title suggests, overall, they found that there was a six-fold increased uh, mortality among uh, those who uh, filled a prescription for antidepressants. And this was increasing um, over time. If you look at the, the graph in the presentation of the abstract, you can see that the lines are diverging um, the further on the study uh, proceeds. This effect was particularly marked um, among those less than 55, so younger people with a hazard rate, rate ratio of 6.66. It's more marked in men than women with a hazard rate ratio of 3.7. It was about equal um, in seropositive and seronegative patients. Um, so this is interesting study. Um, two main possibilities about what this means. It most likely means that a diagnosis of depression is associated with increased uh, mortality in this rheumatoid arthritis population for reasons um, that which are not fully elucidated at present. Of course, there's also the possibility they're using antidepressant prescriptions as a surrogate, that antidepressants could be associated with mortality. Um, however, that's not something um, we've really seen among the use of antidepressants for other indications, so a less likely uh, hypothesis. Remember to follow uh, Room Now across our various platforms for more content from ULR 2022, um, and follow me, Richard P.A. Conway, uh, on Twitter. Good afternoon from ULAR 2022. I'm Dr. Eric Dine, checking in from New Jersey in the US. I'm here virtually, uh, but tuning into Copenhagen and seeing all the, the latest information from this excellent conference thus far. Um, we had a wonderful plenary session um, on the first day, and I wanted to talk about oral presentation 0067, uh, which was looking at incident depression as a risk factor for mortality in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. They define incident depression as someone receiving, uh, their, filling their first antidepressant over the study time period. Um, and when they looked at these patients that had this new diagnosis or new treatment of, of depression, they found that there was more than a six times increased risk of death in patients over uh, under 55 years. Um, this difference, it was a long-term study of, of 10 years, but this difference was especially noted very early on uh, that there was increased mortality in these patients with rheumatoid arthritis that had uh, a diagnosis of depression. 
Um, there was a lot of conversation after the plenary as to, uh, first of all, the definition of depression. Um, the definition shouldn't really be just based on, on medications and uh, potential confounding and bias with this. Um, there's definitely a risk of bias with medications like um, duloxetine that can be initiated for chronic pain or neuropathic pain from possible auto, autoimmune RA disease activity. Uh, but that said, the, the takeaway is a, a very hard endpoint of mortality that we care um, a lot about in our patients. Uh, these are patients that, uh, again, it was most seen in the patients under 55 years old. Um, and so it's something that um, shows to be one of our biggest risk factors uh, for a poor outcome is depression. So uh, as we look at all of the risk factors that we consider in, in treating diseases like heart disease, liver disease, smoking, we need to have depression and mental health up there with everything else and uh, making sure we're treating not just the rheumatoid arthritis, um, but also their depression, uh, as well as incorporating it into our screening tools and our conversations from the first visit, um, because this is something that, that seems to have a, a major impact in our patient population. Uh, lots more information to come on room now um, from the rest of this conference at ULAR 2022. Hi everyone, this is Aurélie Nage from Glasgow today live from Copenhagen and I'm buzzing. This is the first day of ULAR. It's the first big conference face-to-face -face that I've been attending in a while. So I don't know if you're as excited as I am, but um, I really am excited. <laughs> today, I have seen quite a lot of nice presentation, but there's one that particularly caught my attention. And I think, I, I think it caught everybody else's attention, maybe not for the right reasons. So to say, um, oral presentation 0070, Treat early, mestrexate um, in pre-RA. Um, so that work was presented and it's a beautiful study. They've been um, obviously taking patients or people that, that are considered as pre-RA because they have already um, pain, but also they have subclinical inflammation detected in MRI. And we will come back to that in a minute. Um, they've given them uh, in the randomized controlled trial a metrexate or placebo for one year, and they've followed them up for two years. And what actually um, comes out from these results is that as long as you treat them, you can delay somehow um, the moment where they're going to develop clinical array and also you can improve their symptoms. But as you stop at two years, what you see is that the two groups are basically no different in terms of what patients are going to develop RA. And I think um, the reason why I brought this up is because, you know, there's been quite a few studies about this. There's been a PIPRA, um, there's been uh, the study where they were using rituximab that I forgot the, the name of, but um, <clears throat> it seems that there's a constant thing that's happening with this study is that the patients that are included are actually almost um, already considered as having RA. They do have subclinical inflammation in MRI. So these patients are very likely to develop RA. And then all the results were similar. As long as you treat them, you can delay the onset of the disease, but as you stop, um, the treatment is not suppressive enough to prevent from the development of clinical RA. So I think it raises quite a few questions. First of all, um, is subclinical inflammation not too late 
to um, is too late to actually come with preventive interventions and should not target patients that are actually considered at risk and do not have any inflammation. Um, and also the question is, um, is, is there a window of opportunity here? Should, the, should we treat them and continue treating them? Um, should we treat patients earlier as well? So all these questions, I think, um, haven't been answered. Uh, but I think it, it's something to really look to um, in the future. Uh, anyway, I will I will stop here. I invite you to tune to ramnow.com for more content. And obviously keep on following us over the next um, upcoming days. We're going to have plenty of new content for you. Um, and follow me on Twitter, Aureli Romo, and follow Now. Thank you very much. Bye. Hi, it's David Liu here at Eula 2022 for Room Now, back in the saddle in Copenhagen. Uh, and what I'd like to just briefly mention is some of the, you know, this Eula is a global meeting. And I really just want to talk a little bit about um, how global implications might have implications for the kind of evidence that we consume. So the study I want to talk about is um, OP0035. And what it is, it's a um, study looking at data across um, many, many different countries all collated about the time of onset of uh, rheumatoid arthritis. It's part of a meteor study. It's spun off from the meteor study. Lots of different people that you know of that involved in this. But what they were looking at are the, uh, is how the age of, of onset of RA varies around the world. There been, there's been some speculation in the past um, that the closer you get to the equator, um, and I guess that's might, that might well be what you call the global south, that those, uh, uh, those countries tend to have earlier onset of rheumatoid arthritis compared to those further away from the equator. And so what this study looked at was that, but then also looked to try and see what might drive that if that was the case. Indeed, the meteor study data did in fact show this was the case. But what it showed was that in fact, most of those things are related to country-specific factors rather than disease-specific factors. Now, I could go through the detail, and it's quite fascinating the way that it was broken down, but I think the key bit here is the fact that we always presume that the rheumatoid arthritis that I see in clinic in Australia or that you might see in clinic if uh, you live in a temperate country is the same rheumatoid arthritis that is happening in other parts of the world which are closer to the equator. But in reality, rheumatoid arthritis is a complex disease. It's a complex disease that is reliant on healthcare systems, reliant on socioeconomic factors. And those are the kind of things that make up what the disease actually is. Now, there's an increasing trend because of a variety of different things, partially because we're treating in the temperate uh, world, in the temperate uh, climate world, we uh, tend to have more money and we tend to be treating rheumatoid arthritis uh, better because we have more money. Um, so we tend to be now get trying to recruit patients from places where that isn't necessarily the case. And the question, of course, is how much do those patients actually resemble the patients that are in, in our clinic? Not just biologically, but in terms of the socioeconomic factors, their motivations. We've talked a bit about this on Room Now before, but I think it bears remembering that maybe rheumatoid arthritis may well be different around the world. Of course, there's a social equity, equity component to all of this, and it probably is worthwhile thinking about the global burden of rheumatoid arthritis. But in terms of what uh, reflects into our rich world clinics, 
suddenly it's a fact that maybe not all rheumatoid arthritis around the world is exactly the same. For more data like that and plenty more from a very, very interesting in-person as well as virtual conference, uh, head on down to roomnow.com for the July 2022 updates. Hello, everyone. I'm Richard Conway reporting for Room Now from ULR 2022. Uh, meeting is in Copenhagen. I'm attending virtually, so I'm coming at you from Dublin, Ireland uh, today. I'm here to talk to you about uh, oral presentation uh, presented on Friday at the meeting. This is OP0263. Uh, the title of this presentation, which I'm going to take uh, quite a bit of issue with, um, as you'll see, is the favourable balance of benefit and harm from long-term low-dose prednisolone added to standard treatment in rheumatoid arthritis patients aged 65 plus. This was by Boers et al. The study is overall called Gloria, um, and we call it that from now on. This was a double-blind randomized control trial. As the title suggests, it was in rheumatoid arthritis patients who are 65 years and older. These patients were on background therapy, and at entry to the study, they needed adjustment of their therapy. What did that mean? That, that meant that their disease wasn't fully controlled. And the baseline DAS in this study uh, was a mean DAS of 4.5 going in. So that's quite, quite a high DAS. That's in the moderate disease um, activity uh, category. Now, interesting to me, only 14% of these patients were on biologics um, at baseline. Um, so with this active uh, disease, and what the authors did, they randomized them in this pragmatic control design uh, to prednisolone five milligrams daily for two years or to placebo. And it was double blind uh, randomized control trial. They enrolled 450 patients. Interestingly, there was quite a high dropout rate. So a dropout rate of 40%, which was matched between the two groups, um, but not a not insubstantial loss to follow up. Over the course of the study, the DAS-28 decreased by 0.37 points. So that's not nothing. It's also not an enormous um, amount. And it's slightly hard to interpret how clinically relevant that actually is, how much of a benefit um, that was to patients. There was less joint damage, but that was by 1.2 points on the SHARP score, which is really nothing uh, of clinical importance. And the, the trade-off for this was that there was a 24% increased risk in adverse events in the prednisolone group, with a number needed to harm of 9.5, and mostly this um, was infection. So as I said, I, I take quite a bit of issue with saying that this is a favorable balance of benefit and harm with low-dose prednisolone. I think there's, there's a couple of issues here. The first one is, is, is this improvement in DAS um, worthwhile at all? Um, not so sure about that. Is it worthwhile in terms of what the, the consequences are in terms of infectious risk? I don't really think so. Um, and the other thing is that we are not in a situation with these patients, only 14% of whom are on biologics, where it's prednisolone or nothing. There are many other options and that these patients could be given that we can utilize in these patients. And all of those have repeatedly been shown to be safer um, than steroids in terms of infection risk, cardiovascular risk, and in every other way. So all of our biologic drugs are safer than steroids. I think in this patient group, we shouldn't be talking about whether we give them low-dose prednisolone or not. 
we should be talking about whether we give them a biologic or change their biologic. That's the route we should be taking uh, rather than using a drug which has been shown repeatedly to have um, increased harms above other agents. For more from Euler 2022, please uh, tune into Room Now across our platforms and follow me on Twitter at Richard uh, P.A. Conway. Hi, everyone. This is Aurélie Nagel from Glasgow. I am here in Copenhagen for day two. Again, very exciting science. You might hear some background noise because I'm still in the conference center, but I had to share all of these exciting things with you. So um, two abstracts I want to uh, really talk you through today. And, and both uh, is OP0084 and 0085. You will see that these titles can sound very complex at first, especially if you don't do any translational research. But this is why I thought it would be really good if I could take a few minutes and try and demystify these um, because they are exciting, but also they are very relevant for what we do in clinical practice. So um, OP0084, digital spatial profiling and how it reveals distinct macrophage transcriptomic signatures in RA. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background here. So um, this cohort is a cohort of patients in remission. And what we, the issue we have usually in clinic is that patients who are in remission, some of them relapse and some of them don't, and we don't really know why. Um, and so what this, this group has been able to find out is that in those who relapse, actually, they have subpopulation of microphages that are present in their synovial tissue that are actually absent in those who not relapse. Um, and, and based on these elements, um, the idea is to better stratify patients. However, if you look into cyanobyl tissue of two patients, one that will relapse and one that will not, you won't be able to see the difference if you look through a microscope to a microscope because the histology would look the same. So what is digital spatial transcriptomic? Actually, this is a technique that allows to look into the tissue histologically, but also to select different areas of the tissue where you're going to do specific transcriptomic um, analysis. And in doing that, um, they actually realized that in the in areas that are exactly looking the same, they were able, able to identify different macrophages subpopulations. And these populations that are responsible, that were associated at least with relapse, they found them in relapse uh, through this technique. So this is quite exciting and this is promising for the future because we can imagine we can also look at so many different types of cells, lymphocytes, etc. So that's the first abstract. The second one, OB0085, is um, kind of reinventing analysis of the R4RA trial. I don't know if you remember this trial. It was quite exciting. It was last year uh, as it got published in The Lancet. So what this uh, group uh, from London did um, as a very co big collaborative effort is they, they um, did a randomized control trial where they stratified patients that were resistant to um, TNF inhibitors into rituximab or tocilizumab based on how their tissue, synovial tissue looked. Um, and while histology was a bit, um, it was a bit of a deception to see that histology really did not help predicting uh, what patient was gonna respond to what treatment, they were, they were able to identify molecular signatures associated to tissue rich in B cells or tissue poor in B cells and patients that had the tissue poor in B cells were more likely to respond to uh, tocilizumab. 
um, while the, 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 the other ones uh, weren't. Um, the issue though with this is that, see, at approximately 30% of the patients that were B-cell poor um, phenotyped also did not respond to dosalizumab. So the prediction was about 60%, which is much better than what we do. But obviously the question was, can we do better? So they went back to these patients, they went back to the tissue and they did some more deconvoluted kind of analysis where they looked at cell um, uh, lineage specific transcripts and they were able to make better to categorize these patients. So all in all, very promising, very exciting, and it sounds like it's very fancy analysis, and actually it is, but this is really what is going to take us to the next step, and I'm sure it's going to really help us a lot to stratify patients in the future, um, and it answers very common clinical questions that we all have. Um, so stay tuned, uh, connect on remnow.com for more content, um, follow me on Twitter at Aurelie Romo, and see you soon. Hello everyone, I'm Richard Conway, uh, reporting for Room Now from ULAR 2022, which is in Copenhagen. Um, I'm at the meeting virtually, uh, so I'm coming at you from uh, Dublin, uh, Ireland today. And I'm here to talk to you about um, an abstract that was pre presented at the plenary abstract session on Wednesday. It was OP0070, it was from Crybolder et al, uh, from the Leiden Early Arthritis Group. One thing I've uh, noticed about this meeting already is that the titles are extremely long. They're almost like an abstract in and of themselves. Um, but the title of this abstract was Intervention with Metotrexate in Arthralgia at Risk for Rheumatoid Arthritis to Reduce Development of Persistent Arthritis and Its Disease Burden, a Double-Blind Randomized Control Trial. Um, from now on, we're going to call this study the Treat Earlier Trial, which is uh, the acronym that they uh, put on it. Uh, so as the title would suggest, this was a randomized control trial. It was double blind uh, with placebo. It was a two-year study. The first year of it uh, was the treatment phase. And then there was a year observational phase um, after that. You might ask, what was the treatment? Uh, so the treatment uh, was metotrexate at the maximally tolerated dose, up to 25 milligrams a week, and one shot of intramuscular uh, methylprednisolone um, at the start um, of the study, 120 milligrams um, of that. And the group they were studying here um, was patients who had arthralgia, so they had joint pain. They did not have arthritis, no joint swelling. They were clinically suspected of potentially developing rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and for more details uh, on that, uh, best to go and look at the previous publications um, of this uh, group from Leiden because they've done a lot of work um, in that area. And they also all had MRI findings of synovial inflammation. And that, of course, is important. Their MRI was not normal. So there were 236 participants um, in this study. The primary outcome um, that they were looking at was arthritis-free survival. So they essentially were looking at seeing if metotrexate prevented uh, rheumatoid arthritis, um, and it didn't. Um, so their numbers who developed uh, this primary outcome, um, so the arthritis-free survival was 80% versus 82%. 
There was a delay in the development of the arthritis in a higher risk uh, subgroup, but, but ultimately they all ended up um, in uh, the same place. Uh, so, so far, so boring. Uh, in many ways, we've seen similar things uh, like this before um, with other studies that you can potentially delay things by intervention, but not really prevent it. Um, but it got a lot more interesting when they looked at some of their secondary outcome measures. So they found a sustained benefit of this early period of metatrexate on outcomes. So they found it kind of across their secondary outcome measures. So on physical function in terms of HAC, on MRI changes um, long-term, and on pain and morning stiffness. So this is really interesting. This suggests to me that similar to the window of opportunity we know exists in what we call rheumatoid arthritis, when we make a clinical diagnosis of that, that in this pre-arthritis phase, there is also a corresponding and maybe who knows more important earlier window of opportunity where intervening very early can lead to sustained long-term, perhaps lifelong uh, benefits that are missed and lost if you delay uh, starting metatrexate. Um, so this is really exciting to me. I've been a kind of naysayer in this area, the ARIA study of Abatacept and the Prairie study of Rituximab. Um, I was not terribly impressed by those, um, but I think there's a lot more here. Um, and I think these authors have both proven a reason to do this and they've also kind of give us, given us a hypothesis or an explanation for why it makes rational sense and why metatrexate uh, might work uh, in this setting. So I'm excited. I think this is going to lead to a lot more studies, a lot more research in this area, and I'm excited to see uh, where we get to. And perhaps in five, 10 years time, we'll be treating patients a lot earlier uh, than we do uh, now. So for more uh, updates from Euler 2022, uh, please tune into Room Now across our platforms and follow me on Twitter at uh, Richard P. A. Connery. Hi, this is Dr. Catherine Dowd reporting for Room Now. I'm at ULAR Day 2. So if you missed this one poster, it's Oral Presentation 0131. Um, it's something definitely to review. Um, what it is was that we've always, you know, in the United States said that methotrexate is safe in men. But in terms of direct proof, um, we don't have direct morphologic proof until now. So in the United States, methotrexate is okay. FDA says it's not. The European League Against Rheumatism really hasn't made a statement about this or any guidelines. So there was this group that studied methotrexate and, uh, in men, and they had methotrexate uh, pre-exposure and post-exposure of methotrexate and evaluated their semen. So in case you didn't know how to evaluate semen quality, um, it's about morphology, it's about the number, the motility, as well as whether or not there's DNA fragmentation. So the men actually gave samples before and after methotrexate. And what was great was the fact that morphology, motility, concentration, even semen volume, testosterone level, LH, FSH, they're actually the same before and after. Now, what was interesting, though, is that DNA fragmentation was increased before methotrexate was given. So it's possible that it's actually active disease activity that's causing the infertility that we're seeing in some of these men. 
And that's always what we've been suspecting is that disease activity can affect fertility. So this is Dr. Catherine Dow. Um, take the methotrexate men and you have a great day. Follow me on Twitter at KDow2011. Uh, I am Maxime Dugados, rheumatologist in Paris and currently attending the ULAR 2022 meeting in Copenhagen, where I have presented a study uh, trying to understand the concept of residual pain. So what is residual pain? In daily practice, we are more frequently nowadays facing the following problem. We have a patient with plenty of swollen joints, a high CRP. We initiate a treatment, whatever the treatment is, and then you see the patient three months later. The doctor is very happy because no more swollen joints, no more CRP, but the patient is still complaining and this pain is called residual pain. And the current question nowadays with the JAK inhibitors is whether JAK inhibitors have on the top of the, their anti-inflammatory effect a specific analgesic effect which might be more uh, relevant in comparison to anti-TNF. So we took the opportunity to collaborate with Pfizer to revisit the Pfizer database with seven placebo-controlled trials in rheumatoid arthritis, two in psoriatic arthritis, and also using adalimumab. And we evaluate the level of pain in the very small subgroup of patients with a complete abrogation of inflammation after three months of therapy, either treating with tofacidine, adalimumab, or placebo. So, of course, it's a small percentage of patients. You see, there's a very hard endpoint. No swollen joint, normal CRP at three months. And then we check the level of pain. And the level of pain was higher in the subgroup of patients received the placebo, despite the fact that they had a complete abrogation of inflammation, than in the patient receiving either adalimumab or um, JAK inhibitor, tofacitinib here. So we conclude that potentially, on the top of the anti-inflammatory effect, we can observe an analgesic effect. But here, we failed to demonstrate a difference between a JAK inhibitor, TOFA here, versus an anti-TNF uh, adalimumab. But my feeling is that this field of research, the concept of residual pain, is very interesting because very relevant for our clinicians. Hello from Room Now. This is uh, ULAR 2022, and I'm uh, very lucky to be joined here with Dr. Amir Rasmajou. I uh, just gave oral presentation uh, 0275. Um, Dr. Rasmajou, um, you're, you're, a, uh, you're at UCLA and I know you're, you're currently over in Copenhagen. Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and, and this project. Yeah, thanks for having me, Eric. Um, yeah, I'm a rheumatology fellow at UCLA, um, starting my third year uh, doing kind of a research hybrid clinical um, program working on a master's degree and um, kind of the way I got into this project looking at RALD patients and lung transplants was um, initially this idea of the mucosal origins hypothesis for RA really fascinated me this idea of the lungs driving the systemic autoimmunity um, that we're seeing in certain RA patients potentially and you know, I, there's a, we have a big pulmonary department at UCLA um, and I got to talking with some of them and um, you know, they just mentioned offhand that they've seen plenty of RA patients, it seemed, who'd gotten lung transplants. And, you know, I thought, 
gosh, if there's any patients who you could study their disease, it would make and see if the lungs are driving pathogenesis it would be maybe those who get a new set of lungs. So um, this was kind of the baby steps of working towards that. And so um, basically got through um, our database, collecting the EMRs at UCLA and trying to see basically, do we have enough patients to even start looking at this? And um, lo and behold, we found about 42 patients who'd had RALD and underwent lung transplant in our centers. And so um, as a first step, I, you know, worked with my mentors and tried to basically look at survival and um, try to see if there's anything that's actually acting as a predictor for mortality in these folks. And, and tell me a little bit about what you found. Yeah. And what we found was, um, you know, our overall patient size was 42, which um, doesn't sound very high. And I would agree in most situations. Um, but looking at this data specifically, it's actually a pretty decent number um, to uh, look at. So um, what we found was that of the 42 patients, 16 of them were deceased at the time of our um, chart review. And uh, we basically looked at overall mortality was one of the main things we tried to look for. And it was a median of about 5.3 years using Kaplan-Meier curves. Um, and then as far as predictors of mortality, um, we didn't find anything that was statistically significant per se, but we found that um, patients who had UIP on histopathology on their explanted lungs had a hazard ratio of about seven um, in terms of mortality. The p-value was just at 0 0.06. Um, we think that did not hit significance mainly because of the um, low sample size, but we think that there's a signal there to potentially um, explore. And it's an interesting one because um, you typically don't think about the explanted lung features actually, um, uh, you know, influencing mortality in any way for the lung transplant that happened before. So um, those are the kind of the big findings we've had so far. I, I think that's fascinating. And, and, you know, certainly we have a long way to go with lung transplant outcomes. Um, it, it, is there any kind of hypothesis that you guys think as to why um, these explanted lungs make a difference? Is there a different phenotype in the patients that had UIP? Yeah, no, that's, that's, a, that's really the big next steps is trying to do more of pre and post analysis in these patients. Um, my guess is that patients who have UIP disease maybe progressed more rapidly and aggressively to requiring a lung transplant. And so, you know, it's hard to say maybe that they were just sicker going into the time of transplant compared to those with NSIP or organizing pneumonia, et cetera. Um, or maybe it's that they're uh, immunophenotype is just a bit different than other folks and the actual lung transplants aren't taking as well. You know, I can't really give a reason to solve this because I haven't looked at if the lung rejection rates, the causes of mortality specifically in mm -hmm. these groups, but those are all next steps that I'm really looking forward to going through and doing. Yeah, I think this is a great study. I think, as you said, 42 is a, is a pretty good number in this particular population. So it'd be interesting if we could pair together with some of the other transplant sites and get some more numbers to, to look bigger because uh, definitely be great to, to find some significance. But I, I think it's definitely very interesting results and a, an interesting trend that you were able to, to highlight. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I After the talk, there was a few people who actually reached out about potentially adding to the cohort. So I'm really, really excited to um, and really uh, open arms work with anyone on this. Um, I'm really passionate about it. And I think that there's a lot of data sitting there not being used. Um, and so if we can compile it all, I think we'll 
um, have some better numbers for our patients. Great, that's the benefit of these types of meetings is, is the collaboration. It's very nice to, to chat with you today um, and we look forward to, to hearing what's, what's coming up next with, with this research. Uh, so thank you very much. Yeah, fantastic. Nice to meet you, Eric. Thank you for having yeah. me on. And thank you to everyone for tuning in. Check out Room Now for lots more coverage throughout ELAR 2022. Hi, it's David Liu reporting here from the Bella Center in Copenhagen, ULAR 2022. I want to just talk to you about uh, abstract, which I think is relevant for a lot of our daily practices, whether we like it or not, and it regards low-dose steroids in rheumatoid arthritis. Now, I think we, whether we like it or not, we've got a whole load of patients probably who are still on low-dose um, steroids, uh, especially maybe things have slipped during the pandemic. Uh, maybe people have self self-regulated their own room, uh, prednisolone. Maybe they've come to you on low-dose prednisolone. Uh, maybe um, it's just something that happens. I think all of those things, all those situations happen in my practice, um, but we do have these patients who've been on prednisolone five milligrams a day for a year or two at least, um, despite the introduction of other DMARDs. Now, there's always a perception that it's hard to get rid of this and that adrenal insufficiency gets in the way of things. And so actually this is where data from the Gloria study, uh, which is overseen by Martin Bors, is actually really interesting in this context. Now, the Gloria study in itself is about uh, taking rheumatoid arthritis patients and adding on prednisolone five milligrams a day in the first place and seeing the benefit of that. Let's not debate the merits and otherwise of that today. And certainly that was another abstract that was presented today. But what I found really interesting was what happens at the end of the two years. Now, they had a look at these patients who were getting prednisolone 5 or placebo. So there's, we take out that, um, we take out that psychological effect of being on the prednisolone and the dependence on it, which we know is a strong um, effect. And they weaned back on that therapy and look to see whether the patients developed symptoms of adrenal insufficiency, biochemical uh, evidence of adrenal insufficiency in the form of cortisol, ACTH, and they looked to see what happened between those two groups. And in fact, they couldn't see a difference between the two groups. So I think it's really reassuring that most patients, when you really try, if you can rip away that psychological component of coming off long-term low-dose steroids, actually can do it. But that needs you and I to hold their hand to encourage them through that quite difficult process. For plenty more on rheumatoid arthritis and the rest of rheumatology from ULI 2022, head on down to Room Now.